Protests have erupted after a man was put in a chokehold on the subway in the US, which killed him. His name was Jordan Neely. Marine veteran accused of choking and killing a homeless man on a New York City subway car. The medical examiner has ruled the death a homicide. Subway rider who put a homeless man in a fatal chokehold is free on bail tonight after being arrested on a manslaughter charge. One thing we can say for sure, Jordan Neely did not deserve to die. majority of the riders are described as having been essentially in consensus that this was the right thing to do. When they say that this was the right thing to do, that the killing of Jordan Neely. No, I'm not for killing, um, ever. Thomas, the reason there were protests after the Jordan Neely murder was because the perpetrator of the killing was not charged for like over yes. a week. No, yes, no, no. And as right. we have seen a pattern of behavior where certain kinds of people who perpetrate certain kinds of crimes are not, do not get the same treatment by the criminal justice system as poor, I'm sorry, black, otherwise disenfranchised people who do commit crimes like pushing women on the subway or socking them in the face, etc. There is a significant gap between being hit as bad as that is and being scared as bad as that is in right. murder. Penny did not try to just intervene without escalating. He escalated. Hi, welcome back to Wrong Think. This week, I'm really glad to be bringing you a conversation that I had recently with Brianna Joy Gray, originally on her Bad Faith podcast. We deal with the subject of Jordan Neely's tragic death on the New York City subway system. It's a complicated subject, and I think we try to suss out the issues from a variety of angles. It's not a debate, it's a conversation between two people who see things slightly differently, but have a lot of respect for each other. I hope you'll check it out, leave some comments, share it if you find it useful, and I'll see you here next week. Thomas Chatterton Williams returning to Bad Faith Podcast again. He is an author, cultural critic, one of my favorite thinkers because of your willingness to really play in the gray areas much more so than Twitter allows. And so welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the, what, the third time we did two Bad Faiths and, and I, one I uh, a University right. of Colorado at Boulder conversation. I think I really that's enjoyed. right. That was wonderful. And people should check all of those out if they haven't already. But Thomas, the exchange, the argument that's been not just engaging you on Twitter, but a lot of us over the past now almost two weeks is one over the death of Jordan Neely, who was strangled uh, to death on the New York subway by a former Marine who has now in the last day or so been charged, but for a long time hadn't been. And there were a series of protests because of two very different narratives that emerged very quickly about what had happened on the train. And to one side of the aisle, <laughs> the, the debates view, what had happened was that a homeless person had been strangled because of an application of disproportionate force and had been killed. And it looked as though the killer was going to be let off scot-free. There were a series of statements made by ideologically diverse people. Governor Kathy Hochul made an initial statement that many people were frustrated by because it seemed to place blame on Neely, who it's important to note had not physically touched anybody in that exchange. Kathy Hochul had said, quote, there are consequences for behavior. 
And many people thought that that was overly focusing on Neely's presumed anticipated behavior or past behavior and not at all on the behavior of Daniel Penny, who had killed him. And there are many people who are conservative who have gone so far as to frame Penny explicitly heroically. Ron DeSantis has fundraised for his legal defense, and many people are literally calling him a hero in the same way that Kyle Rittenhouse was framed as such after that exchange. Where did you fall for people who weren't watching this back and forth on the internet in the middle of this? Yeah, I appreciate you asking the question first that way, because there are different layers to the conversation. And one of the worst things that happens in a place like Twitter is that people basically try to force everybody into a dichotomous mode of thinking. So if you say this, then you're for this. If you say you can understand why somebody needs to intervene, then you're saying that you're for killing. It's like, no, I'm not for killing ever. I think it's really tragic. Sometimes it happens. And, and let's talk about all of the steps that lead to this like tragic outcome that I don't think actually anybody wanted. I really don't believe, like everybody else, not having been in that car, I don't believe that people entered into the train car, uh, Daniel Penny, but also the men who assisted him, the women who thanked him, the majority of the riders that some of the witnesses in the immediate aftermath uh, described as having been essentially in consensus that this was the right thing to do. When you say that this was the right thing to do, the killing of Jordan Neely, the restraint of Jordan Neely, because... Let's just also say something that I think it's lost in the Twitter debate, too. He didn't die on the train. He mm. died in the hospital. So everybody involved in the restraint, they, I believe, held on far too long. But when they believed he stopped struggling, they released him from the restraint, put him on his side. And there's a video that you can see of when they're standing up that Neely takes a deep breath. They didn't act as though they had tried to choke him until the point of death. And then that was their end goal. And the passengers didn't seem to believe at the time, if you watch the video, that he was in fact dead and he wasn't dead. So all of that actually matters. And it's very difficult to tease out those subtle layers of nuance in the back and forth of whether you're for or against a killing. And that's a long way of coming back to saying, of course, I'm not for a killing. I think that actually he didn't need to be placed in a chokehold. That's debatable. But it seems to me that, you know, you have to be able to talk about whether or not civilians ought to be in the position of having to navigate these extremely chaotic situations, endure a type of disorder that oftentimes doesn't end in violence, but often enough does that there's a kind of edge and a feeling of fear in the subways that has not fully gone away since the pandemic. And when the levels of killing and violence on the, and rape on the subway were at astronomical levels for what any civilized society should be tasked with living with just to take public transit. So all of that is in the air. And I think that fundamentally what happened was that society, government, the state failed because Jordan Neely wasn't even supposed to be in the subway at the time. He was supposed to be in treatment. He was deemed very recently a threat to himself and others. He had, in fact, assaulted women on multiple occasions in the subway. One quite seriously when he punched a 67-year-old in the face and broke her nose. None of that is necessarily what Penny and the others knew at the time. Well, quite to the contrary, it's, it's not just not necessarily what they knew. They did not know. They absolutely had they no knowledge know that. of that. Right. But one of the things that you can't have a very nuanced conversation about on Twitter is whether we know that and we can, as rational observers who are participating in discourse, ask ourselves if somebody who was deemed very recently to be a risk to themselves and others for doing just the types of things that made several men feel that he was acting erratically and needed to be restrained, we can ask ourselves if that is in any way 
rational to see things from the perspective they may have been at the time. Does that make sense? Really very few people on Twitter were understanding that point. They were thinking that, no, you're saying that he knew that Neely did that. I'm not saying that he knew that Neely did it. I'm saying that Neely acted erratically on a regular enough basis that we can imagine, because the video doesn't actually show what led up. It only shows once he's being restrained. So this is, I think, the concern that people have, Thomas, is that every time one is on the subway or elsewhere and observes a person behaving erratically, whether they are homeless, whether they are drunk, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people act out in the streets and we see it all the time. The obligation, it really occurs to most people that the obligation is to physically restrain the other person on the first instance, especially if physicality hasn't been engaged first by the erratic behaving human being. So I think part of the concern is why there is this focus, as you said, on the perspective of the writer and an assessment of how legitimate their fear is when it seems to others that the calculation that needs to be made is not how afraid are you which is, I think people are entitled to their feelings of fear. I think every, uh, most people have had apprehension on the subway or in other kinds of public spaces when there are people in the midst of public health crises or people who are, there's a, a economic gulf that makes those kind of situations ripe for certain kinds of criminal activity and, and the like. There are some people who would deny even articulating that. I'm not one of them. And I think most people are willing to say, yeah, the subways are messy and sometimes I'm afraid in the subway. But why, when there is one dead person in a scenario, does it seem like 98% of the discourse is about how justified Penny was in his behavior, not in being afraid, but in putting Jordan Neely in a chokehold, holding him in a chokehold for many, many minutes. I know there's some disputes. I don't want to say the full 15 minutes, but many, many minutes. Yeah, I'm not sure that people were getting the numbers right. In such a way, by the way, that there was a petition that was drafted by a fellow Marine who was very frustrated by the way that people are justifying this right now, and who's saying that, one, we were trained not to do this. When we do chokehold, it's to kill. Um, that there is an understanding that you should have someone passed out within seven or eight seconds, right. and then holding them for right. minutes is inappropriate. There was audio from the, the train car, which showed that another bystander off camera said, hey, yeah, I think this person's defecated themselves. I have some experience in this. And when people defecate themselves, it's over. You should let go. Right. Can I just interject really quick? At sure. that point, he's you can see in the video when the guy's talking, he is not, first of all, talking in a tone that makes him think that Neely is dead. And Neely, in fact, is not dead. And he's breathing. Mm -hmm. At that point, they were not aware that they had killed him whatsoever. At the point where he, he just says, once he's defecated, you got to let it go. And they had let go. I'm not debating that it wasn't an inept chokehold, that it wasn't an overreaction. I just want to also stress that I'm not saying that that was exactly the right way to go about things. So what was the right way to go about things? Because it does seem to me and to others engaged in this debate that there is a presumption that there was an entitlement in the first instance to somebody physically intervening and restraining Neely before the point at which he physically attacked anybody else, physically touched, interacted with anybody else. Well, yeah. I mean, this is where most of my commentary over the week or so that the debate was really going strong was about the profound failure of the state. The right response is that there should not have had to have been a response by regular law-abiding citizens in the subway. That's a profound failure. Even you framing it that way, Thomas, presumes that there had to have been a response. Can you not imagine a world 
where Neely was pacing and being erratic and shouting and the like. Nobody said anything to him the way that most of us do every time we encounter that on the subway. You get up, you change cars. Neely eventually gets fed up and goes to the next car, goes about his business, and nobody dies that day. That happens plenty of days. It's still in dispute what actually happened, but not all days even with Neely. And I don't think that that's completely relevant. I mean, you're a Harvard-trained lawyer. I'm not going to educate you on the law. I'm I'm nobody's criminal justice attorney. I'm not making what I feel like is a legal argument. No, no, but I mean, you understand the law inside and out in ways that I do not. But I've put enough time in New York. I'm a New Yorker. I'm here these days. I'm a human being. I've studied philosophy. I've thought about ethical situations. And I don't think it's irrelevant to say that Somebody who looks as though they're on the verge of acting violently says that gives you a kind of warning that they're ready to die, that they don't mind going back to jail, and I believe was throwing trash at people and then takes their jacket off, slams it on the floor. I don't know what the line is that somebody's supposed to say, I'm just going to wait until the actual blow comes or something happens. And I just want to hold open the possibility of uncertainty there. There's something really, really, really that bothers me on this left virtue signaling online discourse where I just want to read something for you because I I think that this is actually something that we have to talk about if we're going to have a full conversation about why it's impossible for regular people to understand what a lot of the left is asking of them, the identity left, not the traditional left, but the left that the online left. Emma Vigeland, Vigeland, I'm going to try to pronounce yeah. her name, the media personality majority report. Mm-hmm. from Majority Report. This is not just the ravings of a crazy woman. This is the kind of apotheosis of a very common argument that I was encountering on Twitter, which was something that if you talk privately or one-on-one to most people, they think that this is absurd, but it actually gets some traction on the discourse that was trying to shut down the possibility that sometimes intervention is necessary. Quote, I was hit at one point sitting on the subway by a man who was having a mental health episode, hit me in the face and body. And it was jarring, right? Vigilant says, every one of us who's taken public transit has this kind of situation happen. And I was scared. I was hit. But my fear is not the primary object of what we should be focusing on right now. What? But Thomas, what? Like, I got to confess, what she's talking about is a context in which a homeless man was killed on a subway car. So I don't think that what she's saying is that her fear is irrelevant, generally speaking, that the, the safety issues that exist on public transportation are irrelevant or shouldn't be the focus of a good deal of public interest and public policy solutions. However, there's something that feels to many of us really inappropriate when the crime that was committed was the murder of a homeless man on the subway, to use that as an opportunity to substitute in all these other concerns, which are very legitimate, but weren't in fact the crime that occurred here. And I would submit that. So we have to separate the discourse from the event. The event, I think most people can come to some type of agreement that something probably like manslaughter, some kind of manslaughter may have happened, but that you're probably not going to get a jury to convict a guy in New York because of all the experiences that we have had and what people know of public transportation and the failure of the government to keep you safe. Those are all truths that we can hold in our head at once. Wait a minute. But then there's the discourse that's different. That's like you can be, you're a Karen if you prioritize your bourgeois need for comfort over. But but wait a minute. That's not precisely what Emma was saying there. And I don't think that... Well, I'll finish the quote. Sure. Then she says, 
And I was scared. I was hit. But my fear is not the primary object of what we should be focusing on right now. It's the fact that this person is in pain. The politics of dehumanization privileges the bourgeois concern of people's immediate discomfort in this narrow, narrow instance. And then she calls it bridge and tunneler anti-homeless hysteria. You're Karen if you prioritize your wish to be comfortable by not being hit in the face. That's not just about Neely. That's the discourse that erupted. Prioritize it over what, Thomas? Because I think that's the important piece that's missing. Well, I think it's non-negotiable. I think most people would think it's non-negotiable. Should your comfort be prioritized over every single thing in the entire world? The sanctity of my face not be... But, but Thomas, come on. That's not what we're I mean, saying here. Really? What's being contrasted here is what should be the priority, the murder of a man or your physical comfort. Now, I think your physical comfort, and I don't even want to call it physical comfort, your, your, right. your right to be free from assault, right? Your right to be free from assault is a significant priority that's very, very high. But when you look to, let's say, criminal codes and what the sentencing guidelines are for various kinds of crime, we can all appreciate collectively as a community that we obviously think that the death penalty is not the kind of penalty that would be implemented for an assault, for being slapped or pushed or that's anything right. that's very, very bad. No right. interest in diminishing it, but it's not as bad as putting someone to death. And so what people are comparing the frustration, and I will agree with you, some people are in service of the argument, minimizing what it means to be assaulted on the train or to be afraid and all of that. I have no interest in doing that. And I disagree to the extent that people are doing that. But I think part of what is provoking them in that direction is just trying to get people to understand that there is a significant gap between being hit as bad as that is and being scared as bad as that is in murder. Or killing. I, I don't mean to say premeditated. Can we but... take a step in between the sure. two and say that what happened was that somebody was motivated to intervene? I'm not yes. sure that I, I can't go and say that he was motivated to kill. Sure. The penalty for striking someone in the face is not the death penalty. And I don't believe that the men who were wishing to prevent somebody from potentially being struck in the face were moving towards the ultimate right. expression of... So let's gain this out. He's being described as a hero. Well, depends. I also think it's very sickening the people that were cheering this on on Twitter and posting memes of something that really skates into a disgusting type of racism or anti-homelessness. But I don't really see very serious people doing that. I hadn't encountered a serious thought leader celebrating. I mean, Ron DeSantis. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't (laughs) consider him a serious thought leader. He's a politician. He might be a demagogue, an opportunist. Running for president of the United States of America. He's a governor of Florida. I mean, these are people like it or not who are leading. There's someone named Amari King who has over 100,000 followers, 3 million on YouTube, apparently. All of this stuff. Who knows who these people are, ultimately? But he, I noticed he was replied to at some point, some part of your exchange with Jamel Bowie and wrote the following. Neely once tried to kidnap a seven-year-old child. He had felony warrants for breaking a 67-year-old grandmother's nose and fracturing her eye socket. You were blind to this simply because he's Black, unreal, glad he's gone. Yeah, that's great. Cr- glad he's gone is not something that I can never get on board with. And I appreciate that. But if we're going to talk about the folks in the ether who are saying things like you're a Karen if you don't want to get hit on the subway, then we also have to accept that there's a lot of discourse out there that's saying because he had prior crimes, because he had been violent in the past, because he's done something things that are legitimately bad and no one I think should approve of, he deserved to die that day on the train. And I think when we game out other scenarios, we can imagine a scenario where Penny, instead of grabbing him from behind and putting him in a lethal chokehold, did intervene, get between him and whoever it was he was threatening, issue a verbal warning, those kinds of things, which 
honestly do create more risk for Penny, right? Because he's making himself a target in a way that I frankly think is more heroic than grabbing somebody by behind and putting them in a defensive posture that you then don't let go of for 15 minutes, long past what your military training told you was appropriate if you didn't want to actually kill somebody. But while other people are assisting you in the restraint and some are actually actively encouraging you, I mean, it's a very what are those difficult situation facts? to Monday morning quarterback, I think, in some well, ways. Well, because, tell me, you know, help me understand what those additional, because you brought up the fact that there were some other people engaged in the restraint. And I've seen other people do this as well. How does that change Penny's culpability for you? Oh, well, it changes it quite a bit. It seems to... Again, I'm not a lawyer, so I am speaking just as somebody who's trying to think through what I would yeah, think if I were moral asked not legal to be, you know, on if I were if I got jury duty or something, mm-hmm. how I would think this through is it seems to me that there was something like some agreement that an intervention was called for and was receiving support. I think that there are signals that a crowd can express that make you know in real time that they deem what you're doing beyond the pale, even if they don't actually stop you. That was clearly the case with, for instance, George Floyd. The reaction was that this is not right, that no one watching is on board. It's very different when other people are choosing to participate or to not express disapproval. That doesn't mean that it's okay, but for me, it complicates the situation a bit. I also think that one of the things you're saying was it would be more heroic if he stepped up, said something, or was ready to intervene at the moment that things escalated more. But why are regular people just being asked to be heroes in the subway? Well, they're not. I live in Europe most of the time. And the idea that public transit is for everybody and should be clean and work is something that is not considered a reactionary position. It's just basically how tax dollars are supposed to operate. This thing that we're supposed to accept in New York City, that sometimes people get shot on the subway, that sometimes like Asian women can get pushed into the tracks. Very little protest over that. Very little Twitter conversation from the B-Boy Buibeses when a woman last year was thrown into the tracks. This is a part of commuting in New York City that I think nobody should be expected to have to endure. And so there's a fundamental failure by the state that I think is getting short shrift in this conversation when we talk about how after so many levels of of dealing with uh, social breakdown, unstructured public spaces, after so many levels of that, why are citizens making this decision at the very last moment when Neely had already left the mental health institute he was supposed to go to instead of jail because he had already broken a 67-year-old? It shouldn't have gotten to that point. And I don't think... It's not anti-Black or Karen-esque to say that. I actually don't know many Black people in the real world who think you're supposed to tolerate abuse or the possibility of assault. I don't know many. Thomas, that's a very good argument for a world in which Neely hit somebody that day on the train. You say, why are we living in a world where we expect some someone who's now being called a good Samaritan, (laughs) but why we expect a bystander to jump in and intervene? In this instance, because it didn't play out, because... Penny did not try to just intervene without escalating. He escalated, right? Right. I think that he handled the situation imperfectly. And no, no, imperfectly or poorly. Possibly it's a manslaughter. Possibly it's manslaughter. Right. I, I mean, we're going to the... see. But social media, progressive Twitter had already convicted him of a lynch. No, no, no. So, so let me come back to this other point that you said. You asked, why is there no pushback from Jamel Bowie and the Twitterati when Asian women are pushed on the subway or when violent crimes happen on the subway? They don't care. No, Thomas, the reason there were protests after the Jordan Neely murder was because the perpetrator of the killing was not charged for like over a week. No, no, no. 
And as we have seen a pattern of behavior where certain kinds of people who perpetrate certain kinds of crimes do not get the same treatment by the criminal justice system as poor, I'm sorry, Black, otherwise disenfranchised people who do commit crimes like pushing women on the subway or socking them in the face. So the protests happened because there was a concern that but for protests, this man might not be charged. And that might have been the case, frankly. You know, we don't have the alternative point of view. But what is there to protest? What is it for Jamel Bowie to write an article about or tweet about if someone commits a crime and goes to jail? Oh, I'll tell you what there is to protest, something that he was very glib about, which is that a lot should be done so that the subways don't become where surplus people outside of the workforce with mental health issues are housed. He should write an article about all of the steps that the state needs to take so that these situations are preemptively avoided because it wasn't supposed to happen. In fact, the way that the law works, this wasn't supposed to have been possible. I don't think there's any It's only a violation of what that. was supposed to happen that this is even that we're talking about. This. Your frustration is that Jamel Bowie hasn't personally written an article advocating for more money going into mental health. I don't care about him. He's an op-ed columnist and he's kind of a... Yeah, he talks about you know, controversies, right? A monothought he, leader on Twitter. You know, he exists mostly on Twitter, even in the culture more than at the New York Times. But I don't care specifically about him, but he represents the view that's very glib about what, you know, the actual problems are. And I think that this is not an instance of white supremacy. It may very well be an instance of something that you've alluded to, which is that poor people are devalued in our criminal justice system, obviously, for sure. Yes, That's true. But it is a very strange conversation that happened from the jump that this was described as a lynching and very viral tweets were saying that this is because a racist white man got on the train and was trying to kill a black man. I just don't believe that that's a description of 2023 American reality in the New York City subway. I don't think that it's irrelevant that the response was multi-ethnic, multicultural, and that there was a obviously an Afro-Latino or a black man holding Neely's hands the entire time and not actually trying to pull Penny off. I think all of this complicates our understanding of what's going on. And so I do want to say that, yes, there's a devaluation of poor people in American society. And I don't think that's OK. But the devaluation started long before the conflict happened. Do you think that there is additionally to a devaluation of poor people in America, a devaluation of black people in America? I think the intersection of poverty and blackness becomes a specific stigma in American life. Yeah. That being the case, and I, I completely appreciate that I think some of the language just from a rhetorical perspective and a persuasive perspective, was not well tailored to actually changing the hearts and minds that needed to be changed. I don't want to police people's choice of language, especially after a tragedy like that one. But I do think that there is a way that I might not personally choose to make claims about the mens rea, the racial beliefs of Penny, especially in the immediate aftermath. I think that it's not necessarily a choice that I would make. However, it also seems obvious to me that even if we can't prove it in every instance and therefore that shouldn't lean overly hard into that, I struggle with imagining this playing out in the same way. And let me know what you think about this. If the races of the two people were swapped, is there a world where a black man strangles a white homeless man who dies on the train and isn't immediately arrested, charged? The immediate arrest thing is significant, but, you know, there's a world in which quite recently one of the most awful videos I've ever seen in my life was circulating that Jamel Bowie and Emily Vigeland, Vigeland certainly never commented on in San Francisco where a black man calmly produced a handgun and shot at point blank range a white homeless person on the street in San Francisco. I imagine he was probably... 
I don't know because the media didn't even care, didn't cover it. Uh, it's a video that you can see. I think. Do you remember the name of the people involved? You'll see it very quickly if you just <laughs> Google. There certainly wasn't an op-ed in the New York Times about it. Was very widely shared on that part of Twitter that thinks that people don't care about this type of story because it didn't have the right. So was um, his name? Was the homeless optics. man's name Louis Gongora? And where is Louis Gongora? Is he white? He seems maybe Latino. He could be white Latino, but. No, Louis Gangora is white skinned, but the Gangora, you tell me what yeah, his ethnicity so, is. Yeah, so look, this game is not a great one. <laughs> it's not a game. I'm just saying that, you know, this is the type of thing that happens. I can very easily imagine a white person being executed in public and no one caring, is what I'm saying. Well, so I agree if that a white poor. person can be executed in public and like in not being a media event. I remember that there was this, I thought you were going to bring up that horrible incidence of the white guy who was on his knees in a hallway with his hands behind his head. Oh, Tony Tempa. No one cared until George Floyd. I don't think that's fair, Thomas. Oh, that, you're I talking remember about the one that I'm talking about the one that they were making jokes while they were kneeling on him and he suffocated to death. Oh, that's no, no, no. I wasn't. But both no, was, of those cases. There's, yeah. Yeah. There's the other case. I think his name is Danny. I always, I'm regret yeah, yeah, that yeah. I have such bad name recall. But when people say nobody cares, I think a lot of us do care and said things at the time. I viscerally remember when that happened and thinking, oh my God. But suddenly it's Yeah, becomes... but you're one of the people that actually cares. Like, <laughs> and you're not a columnist at the Times. There was no column at the Times. Well, wait a minute. Years later, Black Lives Matter becomes a movement as a consequence of all of these killings and the mass protest movement arises. And then any given case of police violence in the past that didn't provoke a similar level of outrage. By the way, there wasn't some big white lives matter movement that happened from the white community talking about how horrible it was that the police gunned down this man either. When moments like that are weaponized against people's contemporary concerns, and there is a presumption that now knowing what happened for people who didn't know or reflecting back on what happened, that there is an indifference that feels like bad faith. It feels like a presumption that isn't necessarily earned or accounted for. It feels very akin to folks who say things like, how can you care about George Floyd being murdered when you don't care about all the black on black crime? When black people who live in those communities are constantly protesting and of advocating course. and looking for relief from the environment that they have to live under. Of course, black people hate violence in their communities. This argument then that there is a one indifference to the crime on the subway. Well, I do think there's some rhetorical stuff that's happening on Twitter where people are, again, downplaying the legitimacy of people's fear in order to make it clear how much less important fear is than the value of a human being's life. I think that's true. But at the end of the day, we had a homeless man killed on the subway. And the story on the front page of the Post and all across America was hero vigilante saves train car from what exactly? Neely, that day, didn't actually hurt anybody. No, he hadn't actually attacked anybody that day. So are we in a minority report situation? No, not more. No, you don't have to know if he had a clean record or not. You just have to judge the situation in the moment. And it shouldn't be something that individual commuters have to figure out on the fly. No, and nobody had to. I just don't to. think that that's something that we can ask. That's the thing, Thomas. You keep framing it like he had to do it. But nobody made Penny do that. And arguably, he didn't have to do it because nobody was necessarily going to get He had to confront the situation that wasn't supposed to have happened in the first place. I really do he, think that, you know, we're not to. so far away on... I basically agree with you that what happened may have actually crossed the line into manslaughter. It's not something that I would argue that there is no reason to investigate this, to have a trial, to ask a jury of his peers to come to a conclusion based on all of the evidence that can be presented. That sounds right to me. 
but I'm somebody that basically like, if I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah, please. One of the taxes of being in the city, if I'm with my children, we're not getting in the subway. I can't use the public transit that I've paid for years tax dollars into if I'm with my children. If I'm with myself, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. And when I do, I almost never these days feel that it's operating the way that the social contract between commuters and the government should ensure it's operating. I think a lot of people would agree with that. But the concern is, and again, this is the same people who are arguably downplaying the significance of fear are the ones who are frustrated that the response to the homelessness crisis in New York and other cities isn't being met. They don't want a world where everyone has to be afraid of being in the subway or that there is a legitimate possibility of being physically assaulted in the subway. They want a world where the public response is actually geared at the root causes of the homelessness crisis, as opposed to kind of a mass militarization of the subway, which hasn't in fact actually worked. So remember, when Eric Adams was elected mayor of New York, he added a thousand mm-hmm. cops to the subway. This has happened after that. And the underlying issues, I think Alayami Oleran pointed this out in a video that she recently did about this, which I recommend to folks, that the average New York City rent is in the high 3000s dollars a month, that one in every 106 New Yorkers are homeless, perhaps unsurprisingly, given how unaffordable it is. At the same time that Eric Adams moved to push homeless people, and it should be noted, the vast majority of which are never violent, the vast majority of mentally ill people never violent, out of the subway system, he was simultaneously tearing down the encampments where they were living outside of the homeless system without providing for any alternatives for where they should live. And that these are factors that are creating a squeeze from the other two directions. And absent killing all the homeless people, which kind of seems from the response to this event seems to be that a lot of people seem to that's think not, that that's you, the you way know, to that's deal. Not my response. Not you, you know, of course. Of course, it's not your response. But, I just have to because you know people yeah, actually course, try to project views onto you. Of course not. But again, if we're going to accommodate the everyone's a Karen view, we have to realize that a lot of people out there, including the front page, what did the front page of the Post say about Neely? It was one-sided. It was completely one-sided. Yeah, I mean, and that is what the pushback is against. Some acknowledgement that a human being, a deeply flawed human being with a tragic life who has done a lot of bad things, was killed for what? For what was his crime that day? What did he do? There's been absolutely no focus on days have gone by and people keep saying, well, we haven't heard all the evidence yet. Maybe we'll, it was almost like people were salivating for one of the witnesses to admit, to say something that Neely had touched someone else first that would, in a way that would justify Penny having put his hands on him. But that is a tell, right? The fact that no one was willing to say, well, no, we know because it's been days now that he didn't touch anybody and that evidence would have been so exculpatory for for Penny. But, but the fact that so many people were waiting for that evidence is a tell that our social contract, when we understand how things should be working in society, is that you don't hit somebody first. You don't put your hands on somebody. That's part of the, the code of the subway. Yes, don't shout at people. Don't defecate on the train, yada, yada. But also don't put your hands on somebody first. No? I don't know as a categorical rule, I'm not sure. At a categorical imperative, I'm not sure that there's no situation in which you don't preemptively restrain somebody. Yeah, I can imagine if someone is pulling out a weapon or lunging towards someone, or if somebody either with is a credi- fist or with a credibly knife. announcing that they will. I'm not sure as a categorical rule you can't. Let's be clear also about what Neely actually said, because there was a complete fabrication of a sentence that was going on for a while that claimed he said some things that seemed a lot more alarming than what he actually did say on the record. It seems that way. Yeah. Yeah. So my understanding is that he did say 
I don't care if I go back to jail and that I'm ready to die today. But there was another statement that was more like, I'm about to hit somebody that was never- I'll hurt anyone. I'll hurt yeah. anyone. Yeah, that, that was a lot. But again, the fact that someone felt the need to fabricate that statement- Well, that was in NBC and they have not retracted it. They have which, not which corrected the article as, as far as I'm aware. So that still is in the NBC article that was from the first reporting. But do you see how the fact that it seems like people had an appetite that that sort of statement seemed to be necessary to justify the intervention so much so that people created it out of thin yeah. air suggests that the intervention was not, in fact, necessary at that stage pre-escalation, that more escalation was required for Penny to be justified in intervening physically the way he did. And again, he could have intervened by just saying something, putting his body between Neely and other passengers. There's other mm -hmm. ways to intervene. Like if there's a fight in a bar, you know, if there's a bar fight and one guy's like, hit me, hit me. No, you hit me. And people, their friends are holding them back. People get in between. But in that scenario, we all know that both guys posturing are like, no, you hit me first because they know that they'll be culpable if they swing the first punch. Right. That's different. But yeah, I agree. But like if somebody credibly looked like he was about to punch somebody in the bar and somebody grabbed him from behind, I think that, that in certain situations could be justified. There was something that you said that I wanted to respond to, though. Sure. I'm not avoiding the implications of what you just said now. I think that you and I largely agree on that. This may have been a preemptive restraint that got out of hand. If it didn't get out of hand, I think almost nobody would have actually objected. Right. To if, if, if Neely hadn't died. If the three men pulled so him to the ground and this. just like sat on him, right. nobody would actually say that that was too extreme. So I don't Agreed. know that the disagreement is over whether he shouldn't have preemptively intervened. It's that he completely bungled by crushing the windpipe or whatever happened, the choke that he did administer. Yeah. And that's a different conversation than, than was being had in a lot of places. But, you know, there's also so much bad faith, so much potential manipulation, so much lying. One of the things that you said was that we have to have a society that cares about treating mentally ill people and homeless people. And it seems to me that Neely clearly had a traumatic life. I mean, it's unbelievable the despair that that man must have been. And I don't make light of that. I think it's probably one of the most terrible things to imagine stepping onto a subway of an indifferent faces and the despair that you would have to say that I'm so hungry, I'm so thirsty, I don't care anymore. I mean, I don't think that that's anything other than horrific and yeah. no one should make light of that. The man's mother was found in a suitcase. You know what I'm saying? Strangled so to death. There's nothing yeah. funny about yeah. any of this. But it does seem that actually, unlike some people, institutions did try to help Neely. And one of the things that was happening was like AOC, mm -hmm. massive platform, actually spreads disinformation, misinformation. When she goes and does an interview with The Cut, whatever section of NY Mag she spoke to, and she says, quote, Jordan Neely was killed because he couldn't access mental health support for insurance reasons. But the New York Times actually contradicts that definitively when they talk about what kept him out of going to jail for breaking the nose of the 67-year-old woman was a judge who said, you can go you know, to a rehab facility, a treatment facility instead of jail. And quote, this is a wonderful opportunity to turn things around and we're glad to give it to you. Thank you so much, Mr. Neely replied in the courtroom. And then the Times writes, but just 13 days later, he abandoned the facility. Judge Bybin issued a warrant for his arrest. So clearly something is going on where the system, even when it's trying to be accommodating, even when opportunities are provided, is not fulfilling its role in actually keeping the subways structured and relatively, nothing is perfect, but relatively safe. These are things that could have been handled. The cops actually did encounter him 
after he had left and the warrant was arrested and they didn't actually check or they didn't, they could have saved his life that day if they would have actually just done their job. Also, emergency workers encountered him in the system relatively recently and said, this man is a direct threat to himself or to others and he needs immediate intervention and yeah. nothing happened. And he was known to the system on a list of the 50 most deserving of direct intervention in the whole subway system. So to just focus in on the very end of this process and to critique all of the things that went wrong in that subway car does seem like we're really late in the game. So Thomas, I, I agree with all of that right up to the end because, I mean, obviously this is a subjective matter of perspective, but you frame that as to just focus on the end. When it feels like, just like after any gun tragedy, mass shooting, the focus is immediately on everything other than the end, on everything other than the human being who got a gun and shot up a school or a church or whatever it was. And if we had been having a week-long discourse on vigilantism and how there's a pattern of vigilantism, I don't know if you know about the Bernie Getz case, wherein yep. a subway rider was approached by four Black teens and asked for $5 and he pulled out an illegal gun and shot them all. They survived miraculously. One was in a wheelchair for the rest of his life, but was not convicted of attempted murder or anything. I think he ended up having to pay a fine and going to jail briefly for the illegal gun charge, but not for what he did with that illegal gun. The fundamental issue is that we live in a country- But there's more to that story too. I mean, it's not so cut and dried either because I believe one of the men that was shot said that they would have actually robbed him or mugged him. So again, this is the question. Does that entitle you to take that gun and attempt to murder? How tolerant are we talking you got to be? I mean, that's a real question. <laughs> no, I think it's an interesting one. And I, you mentioned France and how there's a different social contract in Europe and other parts of the world and the subways and there's different expectations. I think the prevalence of firearms is also an important difference to mm -hmm. keep in mind when we're comparing people's sense of fear, heightened expectations, the fear that Neely could have had a gun is something that I'm also sure affected people's concern and what they felt justified preemptive intervention, right? So there are these ways that the fact- The stakes of, are so much higher in America. Yeah, the stakes are higher in America. And it's not, it seems to me, obviously, to work against everybody involved, people with guns, people without guns. There was a Black female police officer that was just killed despite mm -hmm. being armed by in a bunch Chicago. of punks. Every angle of this is tragic, but- in this case, even with the two of us, we've barely talked about the implications of someone using a dangerous chokehold for longer than the recommended seven or eight seconds it's necessary to incapacitate someone, minutes and minutes and minutes on the subway. Someone who was trained, who had spent many years in the military, who ostensibly, according to fellow military officers, should have known better. I've also seen people mm -hmm. who are experts in MMA and, other, and these kind of fighting techniques say that this was fundamentally inappropriate and recommend that this right. person be charged, right? There's a lot of con consensus. Seven seconds. Right. So all of that being the case, that is such a small fraction of the discourse, I do think is frustrating. Now seeing also Penny being made into a hero, the photos that are used of him hiking and looking like a golden boy as compared to the photos that are being used of well, other kind of There was a lot of photos of, of, of Neely being just a Michael Jackson dancer and very Well, he was the one that was murdered. Not, <laughs> right, but I've seen descriptions of him that are also like, he had been arrested over 40 times, but only four were for assault. How many times have you been arrested for assault, Brianna? I think it's legitimate to be like he was arrested four, four times for assault. This is going both ways. There are people that are trying to say 40 arrests are dispositive and indicative of 
a constant pattern of violence when most of those are for nonviolent crimes. That is also relevant. But some people are trying to make it serious seem, violence. Well, yes. But the people who are trying to make it seem like more by emphasizing 40 are going to be counterbalanced by people who are trying to make it seem just what it is by saying this more of them we were violent assault. The, the origin of the conversations. You can't suss these things out on Twitter, I don't think. Fair enough. Because Fair of exactly enough. what you're saying. It's impossible. It's impossible to get at the kind of conversation that you're teasing out where ultimately I think you and I essentially agree that the chokehold went wrong and I don't have the legal background you do, but it very well might be manslaughter. I don't know that you can convince people because most people say on the jury have to endure the subway system and I just don't know that they're going to convict. But I agree with you that it was an inept chokehold. One of my best friends is a BJJ. What's BJJ? Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Oh. You would never want to run up on that man by mistake thinking that it would go one way because it would go the other way. And he was like, this is absolutely a travesty of a chokehold. It shouldn't ever be like that. I mean, there's a reason why the police don't do it anymore. They're not supposed They're to. They're not supposed yeah. to do it anymore. Right. I agree with that. But you can't have that kind of conversation on Twitter because the moment you try to introduce some type of ambivalence, someone's like, oh, Karen, please, I carry granola bars for this reason. That granola bar discourse is you can't have a serious conversation about Look, I, I think that's structured fair. public space. I think that's fair. The granola bar isn't going to solve the problem and vigilantism isn't going to solve the problem. The issue is I, I do think I would say to you that there is a, I think, keeping space open for, let's say, the percent of which this was a racial issue versus a class issue is a good space to keep open, a worthwhile spot to hold open until we know more. And maybe there's there's things obviously we'll never know. But I do think there's a, a kind of weaponized ambivalence about certain things that there is no ambivalence about because they're facts that we know, like that Neely never hurt anybody that day on the subway, never touched anybody in that subway car, that the use of force from Penny was disproportionate that because of his training, he probably should have known that it was disproportionate and that he should have been charged. That was not something that needed, you know, 10 days or whatever to pass before we knew those facts, that it is unethical and cruel to be turning him into a hero and for many leaders in our government to be doing exactly that. That even Kathy Hochul, an ostensible liberal, having the statement that initially put the blame on Neely was also inappropriate. When those kind of things aren't said clearly, then I think that that collapses the room for holding space for the more ambivalent parts of it, right? Because it starts to make folks seem like a bad faith actor who is much more concerned about a certain kind of thought experiment that is very attenuated from the facts on the ground, which was that this guy was murdered and that his life had value regardless of all of the bad acts that he's done in the past. And that the sentence for those bad acts had the criminal justice system worked better would not have been the death penalty. I agree with much of what you said. Do you think it was murder, though? Because from my understanding, it was an accidental death. The goal was not death. I don't know. So, so is it already inflammatory to call murder? Because that's the thing. He was already convicted of murder or lynching by an influential segment of the left online. I've been trying to actually to avoid using the word murder. That was, you know, a slip up on my part. I think that a trial will tell how much 
he was warned in the car that he had been holding him for too long and chose to keep strangling him. What we might learn about his background. I mean, some of these killers and things that we've seen in the past, we see Facebook posts about how I'm, I think it was mm-hmm. the guy who got, who ran about, down a bunch of people with this car who had said, oh, I'm mm-hmm. I'm really angling to run down a bunch of people and kill a bunch of people. <laughs> yeah, I, I... But we may not, of course. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to impute anything to this man. I'm just saying that's what a criminal investigation will determine. Right. But I do think that that's definitely negligent homicide. I think that's pretty safe to say at this point. May I just ask you, because I don't, what's the difference between negligent homicide and manslaughter? I'm making a distinction that if it's, we're saying murder or using words like lynching, mm-hmm. it's the intent mm-hmm. to kill. But at a certain point, if you are engaging in activity that is known to have that kind of outcome and you choose to do so, even if you didn't say I'm going to go and kill someone or mean to kill somebody, it's like, for example, right. negligent homicide is like if I, if I have a, a mace, like a medieval spiked ball on a rope and I'm swinging it around my head, walking through Times <laughs> Square, yeah. right? Like I can say, I'm not trying to kill anybody, but if I walk through a crowded room swinging a mace around my head, obviously I'm so indifferent to the safety of others that it's negligent homicide. And at a certain point, if you've been trained the way that we know he's been trained and there are people around saying, mm, this has been a lot, maybe he defecated himself and it's time to let go and he still persists. That's an issue. That's a legal issue. Right. I, actually, I rewatched the video before we talked today. Yeah. The uh, part where he's talking about when he defecates, you got to let him go. That's after they released him. He was like, yeah, yeah, you got to. That's why you had to get up because they're still talking as though the man is going to come to. Mm-hmm. And he does. You can see in the video that Neely takes a deep breath. He dies at the hospital. Mm-hmm. So even the guy who says as soon as you defecate, you got to let up. He's just like he's making chat with the guys after they've done their intervention. It sounded to me like he was reflecting on how this was a bad course of action. You know, like, oh, we shouldn't have. Yeah, he was like, well, you're skirting mm. the line. It seemed like, and he was like, he's like, you don't want to catch a charge. But he wasn't saying yeah. you just killed that man because it wasn't apparent. No, and I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying if you're in the moment and people are reflecting on whether or not this already in the moment was a disproportionate use of force, that to me should be where this whole national conversation should have been on. That's an ambiguous issue. It's tricky. It's legally tricky. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll flip it to you because how much more possible would that conversation have been if in the immediate aftermath, people with massive followings like Mark Lamont Hill didn't say, here's lynching, modern day, 21st century American lynching. I mean, I think that that makes people react. I think that's fair. And it's a bit of a chicken and the egg situation. I will say though, just to come back to this race point, while I personally would not use the word lynching, and after I did an initial tweet with murder and then walked it back and said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to actually, I didn't say murder to imply intent, but I was trying to emphasize that a man was killed and I revised. I completely agree with all of that. I am also not comfortable. You acknowledge that there is a particular unit of race and poverty, Blackness and poverty, that is kind of stigmatizing and coincides with the devaluing of life. I am uncomfortable taking that piece out and to the extent that people like Mark Lamont Hill are pointing to that reality and questioning that that disparate valuing of life, of Black and poor lives, likely played a role here. I don't object to that. And I think that some of that language, even if I wouldn't choose to use it, is trying to get at that question. Yeah, I do feel you on that. I think that we make a mistake in this public conversation where everybody talks and everybody listens and responds to everybody at the same time to allow a variety of words that are really the superlative of whatever idea we're trying to express to just go out because it invites people to 
instead of engage uh, at a level where they may have been reachable in the gray area or even essentially agreeing with the idea itself, not even needing to make it more ambiguous, they feel that they have to push back because it was the superlative was such an overreach mm -hmm. that you have to say, this was absolutely not a lynching. Eric Adams is absolutely not a fascist. You're using this language, like words have to mean things. And so I, I actually think that if if there weren't a feeling that in the past few years, words that we have lost like sense of the different meanings that words are supposed to convey, the difference between manslaughter, killing, murder, lynching, the difference between police are coming on tough to protesters, NYPD sucks, Eric Adams is actually a fascist. When all of those things get conflated together, I think it actually does inspire a type of person to just say, I won't give an inch now. And one of the reasons why I'm off Twitter is because I don't like that feeling in myself. I try to write very carefully when I publish books or essays or things like that. And I find myself so viscerally reacting to the abuse of language in this superlative form of every single concept that I think it's actually, the effect is that it's destroying my ability to stay in that area that I want to be in of nuance and it's making me reactive. And I think other people are kind of saying things that they don't necessarily believe. I also think that people themselves who are on the far progressive side are saying things they don't fully believe. It's one of well, those- Well, I do think that I people think can make it, a good case of Eric Adams being a fascist. <laughs> a fascist? <laughs> the, the criminal justice reform people have a list of receipts and look, in a very legal, like strict, not legal, but like a very strict kind of historical definition of the word, people feel like we're on a trajectory. And I don't think that they're wrong in pointing out that there are political moves that are being made that do. I'm sorry, especially if this man were never charged. If you're in a place where you're insulating vigilantism against a class of human beings in your society that has been marked as inferior and whose lives don't have value, we are going down a very dangerous path. Now, I agree about the rhetorical strategy of calling everything boy who cried wolf, all of that. I think that you have to be careful, but I don't think that people are necessarily exaggerating when they're waving certain kinds of red flags about certain kind of political trajectories that we're on. Even if I'm on a comms perspective, I think that there's a boy who cries wolf risk. I was really hoping to get just a... <laughs> Just a soundbite on what you made of the whole can the Texas shooter with the swastika on his arm really be a Nazi if he is Latino or can he be white supremacist or subscribe to white supremacist ideology if he oh, is yeah, Latino? Yeah. That's a weird conversation, actually. And it's, it's one of these things that there is something really abysmal about Elon Musk weighing in on that and calling it a psyop and muddying the waters that way from his position running Twitter my view of Latinos specifically is that there very much can be a white supremacist element to Latino American identity and self-conception. And if the man has swastikas tattooed on his body and is LARPing as a white supremacist long enough, I mean, I tend to take people at their self-presentation. So yeah. there's not a need to be so contrarian that you disregard what the man is trying to tell you yeah. about his ideological beliefs. I think that one's pretty cut and dry. Yeah, it's kind of amazing that there was dispute. We were talking about this on Rising and there was a guest who kept trying to say like, well, I don't know if he's a Nazi. I mean, there was a way that the guest was basically lumping himself into the man's ideology. And he was like, this isn't a left versus a right thing. We don't have to bring... I was like, you're right. This isn't a left versus a right thing. Neither the left nor the right says they like Nazis. So why can't you just say as a conservative, I disavow this. He's a Nazi. He has nothing to do with me. The fact that you're defending it 
implicates you in his ideology in a way that nobody is asking for. <laughs> You're telling on yourself. And that seems to be what's happening over and over on, on the internet. 100% agree with you. We may not have generated as much disagreement as you were hoping for. I basically agree with you. I just want to leave space to be critical of narratives that are pushed as the only correct way to think, which is not what you do. Well, I'm, I am not ever interested in, in generating disagreement. I love talking to you because it's the opposite. I like you as a person with whom I can have thoughtful disagreements that aren't going to be I think you're a good faith factor. I disagree with you frequently. I was I watching the, the discourse good. and was mostly, <laughs> I disagree <laughs> with you, but I really relish the opportunity to talk things through with someone who I know is coming from a very thoughtful place and a very well-reasoned place. And so I want to thank you again for joining me. Can you let the audience know where to find you in your work out in the real world? Always a pleasure. Find me on Instagram, a mostly pleasant platform at Chatterton Williams. I've got a podcast. I'm trying to, I'm inspired by the Brianna Joy Grays of the world. I'm trying to do my podcast thing at Wrong Think Pod. And I write for The Atlantic and I write books. So run into me in the street. I'm nice. <laughs> we'll get along. <laughs> Strong recommend for that. Thank you all for listening uh, and for subscribing to this premium episode. I am taking a little bit of a hiatus from Collins, but I might do some Colin related live streams. So stay tuned. I will let you know over on Bad Faith Patreon what the plan is there. As always, thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves and keep the faith.